welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. I've got John McCollum of Eden Ridge Outfitters on the phone, based out of Oregon. John, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Jay. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great. I'm actually in Colorado today and uh, took a little break from skiing, doing a little fishing, and uh, life is good. So what part of uh, Oregon do you guide in, or where do you live? I live near Coos Bay in a little town called Myrtle Point, Oregon. Um, we're basically here on the southern Oregon coast, um, guiding, you know, multiple units throughout the state. But our specialty here is uh, Roosevelt elk, you know, the Columbia black-tailed deer, and the recently delisted uh, Columbia whitetail as well. What would you say out of those is your favorite to hunt? I, I like it all. I like all the hunting aspects of you don't have one favorite over the other. My wife always says, whatever's in season at the time. <laughs> That's a good answer. Um, now, I'd have to say Bugle and Roosevelt Elk is probably my favorite, and then I'd have to follow that up with Rutting Columbia Blacktails. Okay, that sounds pretty cool. Um, I want to today kind of go over the Oregon uh, big game draw and have you kind of diagram for us how and break down for us how Oregon does its draw kind of from beginning to end, as if I was a hunter calling you, asking you, how do I get a tag in Oregon? Well, um, the only real downfall I have with Oregon, you know, is that we, we're pretty stingy on our tags. We only give out 5% to, of our deer and elk to non-residents and 3% towards our antelope and bear. So... You know, you hear a lot of people talking about, you know, 10%, you know, being stingy. Um, they really don't talk much about Oregon in that aspect. But we are on a, what they call a preference point system. Therefore, for example, Jay, if we have 100 tags given out in a particular unit, that means there's going to be 75% of those tags or 75 tags will be given out to the people with the most preference points. The remaining 25 tags will be given to the people with, on a random draw. Um, the unfortunate thing for non-residents is, is they always fall in that 75% pool. So if they don't have the most points for that particular species or you know, number, you know, number of preference points, their chances of drawing is minimal or none. I'm not sure, um, John, if you're familiar with the way Arizona just made their change a couple years ago where uh, they, they give 5% of the, they still give the same 10% of the tags to the non-residents, but now they give 5% to completely random draw and up to 5% in the maximum pool draw. So what you're telling me is Oregon is different in the fact that it's a true preference point state where you have to have the amount of points in order to draw that tag? Yes, yes. And like I say, so for example, if there's 100 tags, there's only going to be five tags given out for that particular, that particular hunt. Now, another thing that we've all got to keep in mind here is half of those tags that are drawn that in any particular year go into another pool for us guide outfitters. So half of those tags will be lost the following year being given to a guide outfitter. So, for example, Jay, you could call me for yourself and say, hey, John, I'd like to come shoot a Roosevelt with you. What do you got? So in November, late October, November, we're sent a packet from the state telling us what tags are you know, to be allocated for that year for that program, and we can apply for those. You know, there's a certain process we've got to follow and go through and uh, make sure we're permitted for the certain areas and whatnot. And the Oregon State Marine Board and everybody's on board there to make sure we're in compliance with that. And then once we apply for that, we go into a random draw. There's a certain test that we have to take, you know, to make sure that we're eligible for those tags as well. So um, just let me know if I've lost you at all there, Jay. You know, well, in, 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 that situation, pretty... in that situation, what you're saying is, I would still have to have the most bonus points for someone putting in for that particular unit. Am yes. I, did I misunderstand you, you, you or you does would, it mean you would, no, 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 you would not 
you personally would not. That tag, I, I get tags every single year that I can sell to somebody that doesn't have any bonus points. So let's say, for example, let's take the Winaha. That's a pretty popular one for everybody in northeastern Oregon up there. If you don't got pretty close to maximum points as a non-resident, you're, you're not going to draw that tag. I mean, you're just waiting in limbo there. Um, it takes, I want to say it takes like at least 20-plus points to draw that tag as a non-resident. So if you yourself, say, had 10, 11, 12, that's what I kind of call no man's land. You're never going to draw that tag. You're not, you're not old enough. You know, you don't have enough years. So you could call me. I could get lucky enough and draw that tag if I was permitted for that area, and I could guarantee you that tag if I was to draw it in the guide outfitter draw. And those tags in those areas where there's only like 10 or 20 tags, which are very limited in Oregon, is on an alternating basis every other year. So, for example, I believe that tag is available in the general draw for the general public this year. So next year, that tag would go to the guide and outfitter program. So you, you follow where I'm, where I'm going with that? Yeah, my question is, for your guide service, do you have guaranteed tags every single year that someone that listens to this podcast, if they wanted to, they could go on a rosy hunt with you every year? Of course, they're going to have to pay for it, but do you get tags every single year that they can go on? In all the years that I've been involved in this, there's only one year that I have not drawn an elk tag. On the average, I draw around two to three every year that I could name. And are those primarily archery tags or, or muzzleloader or rifle or what are those? It's, it's, it's a mix, you know, so it's a random draw. There's, I apply for probably around 15 to 20 different elk hunts, you know, archery. There's only one archery Roosevelt elk permit, you know, or area that's controlled in the state of Oregon. The rest of them are over the counter. So most of them are all rifle, and there's a new muzzleloader hunt, which takes place in late December. Okay. So for those out there listening that want to spend a little dough and want to go on a hunt, generally what type of um, price tag are, are guys looking at uh, to go on a guaranteed hunt? You're, you're looking at anywhere from 8500 to 125 Okay, and that's for a Roosevelt elk. Um, now, are they still bugling then? Um, in the archery season, of course. Rifle season, no. Our archery season goes from the last Saturday of August to the last Sunday of the December. Second to last Sunday of December. I'm sorry, excuse me. Um, September. And then our rifle seasons, um, the first season, which is only five days long, will start on the 10th of this year and end on the 14th of November. And then the second rifle elk season will go from the 17th of November and end on the 25th, whatever that following Sunday is, through Thanksgiving. And the muzzleloader, okay. se the muzzleloader season is, opens on the 8th of December and goes to the 23rd of December. How do you conduct your late hunts? Are they primarily glassum hunts? You know, spot yeah, and stock it's all, it's all It's all spot and stock. You know, we've got a lot... Lots of logging roads around here, private timber companies. Um, we may have to pay a, a access fee, you know, to one of these private timber companies. I've got, you know, two or three ranches that I like to hunt on and pay access for at least every year. Um, that gives us that much access. And then I'm also permitted on the National Forest and BLM ground as well. How much would you say of your elk hunting is Roosevelt and how much is, you know, um, guiding in, you know, for Rocky Mountain elk? I, I mean, all I do is 100% Roosevelt. Okay, so that's an easy question. Um, you yourself on your own personal tags, do you apply for those premium units and do you know about the premium Rocky Mountain elk units in Oregon? Um, you know, I, I've got a lot of friends. I've spent some time in those Rocky Mountain elk units, not an overabundance of it. Um, I know which are the most, you know, sought-after units. Um, I just like Roosevelt hunting. That's where my heart's at. 
Yeah, no, I've taken when a handful. You, have you handful. hunted Rocky Mountain elk enough to be able to tell you the definitive difference as far as behavioral patterns or bugling or such between a Rocky and a Rosie? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, matter of fact, I was fortunate enough to have an, a Unit 8 tag there a couple, three years ago in Arizona, and, and uh, I've hunted it once with rifle late um, in Unit 1 in Arizona, so I've been fortunate enough to have a couple tags down there, uh, one with a rifle, um, one with my bow, and then I had an early rifle tag for Rocky Mountain in Wyoming. So, yeah, I've, I've, had a, I've been fortunate enough to chase some, some bugle and elk. What would you say the big differences are? Um, I'm going to say the Rocky Mountain has a tendency to be uh, quite a bit more vocal than the um, Roosevelt's. Um, but, you know, on the right day, the right place, um, I've seen the Roosevelt's act just, just as much, you know, be, be as much vocal as a Rocky. There's a body size difference, I hear, or no? Yes, there is. A, you know, a, a big bull, and when I say a giant, you know, he's going to be 20% bigger body weight-wise than a Rocky Mountain. I've seen some of these bulls be in excess of 1,000 pounds. When guys say that rosies don't bugle as much, they're not as vocal, how much of that is that they live in very dark, dense timber, and maybe you just can't hear them as well? Well, our ground, you know, if you've never been out here in Oregon, is very broken up. And unless you're standing on top of a ridge top or something and the bull's down the bottom of a canyon, uh, you're just over the break of the ridge on the other side trying to get something to sound off, you're more than likely inclined not going to hear him. Um, I'm also a timber faller by trade. And in those circumstances, when I'm working on one side of a ridge top and my partner's on the other, I can barely hear that guy running a chainsaw, let alone an elk bugle. So, so not that, only the vegetation, but the, the lower canopy as well. The, I mean, not only the timber, but the lower canopy and the, you know, big timber basically muffles a lot of sound. Yes. Oh, yeah. But they, they, will, they will speak to you. I'm going to say, you know, our Roosevelt's... Um, Key bugling time, you know, I like personally around the Labor, Labor Day weekend, you know, until about that second, second to last week, they seem to be the most vocal for me. What kind of success rate um, do you have on Rosie's as far as, I mean, is it a deal where, yes, everybody gets a bull or gets a shot, and then it just becomes a matter of, you know, being selective and trying to find a good one, or is just getting a bull a, a feat in itself? Well, you know, it. That's really kind of a, not, not a tough question there, you know. Each guy's a little bit different, you know. I mean, I'm sure you've got those guys that are looking for the biggest bull on the mountain, and then there's just those guys that are looking to collect a, a nice representative. What I tell guys, you know, realistic shots, I call 30 yards or less, you know, during archery season, and I'm going to say I've ran about 95% success rate in giving guys shot opportunities. You know, and as you well know, archery elk hunting is one of the, as far as I'm concerned, one of the toughest things to do on the North American continent, especially with these great big giant Roosevelt's, because if you put a bad hit on one, your likeliness of being able to get a follow-up shot or get him on the deck is, is super tough. That's why I tell guys, I go, you're better off to let him walk off and try to get him the next day rather than taking a, a shot to try to, you know, weave the needle through the the tight hole there, you know, and uh, something bad happened because you need to get both lungs, you know, and or the heart. Yeah, for sure. So your elk hunts, uh, you take people that draw tags every year, and then, like we talked, you also have the ability to sell a few tags. Would you Our say arch- you run a big outfit or a small outfit or medium? What kind of, what, um, how would you describe you know, yourself? Um, I'm going to say I take around 20 different big game hunters a year, you know, so I don't take a lot. I don't take a lot of people, but then again, I'm not a, a minimal guy either. So guys that are listening that say have never applied in Oregon, you know, are they so far behind the eight ball that you're, you know, you would just kind of laugh and say, golly, man, if you've never applied, how, how would you address that group of people? No, um, you're, you're never behind the eight ball. You just need to find somebody like myself that pays attention to the statistics, and, and the math doesn't lie, you know. There's rifle elk tags out there that we can help you draw. 
with two to three years of applications. You know, so to think that you got to draw the absolute best unit out there that might take on the average of 10, you know, a lot of guys that end up coming to me that are ready to pull the trigger on a Roosevelt, you know, they've never applied in Oregon. So they either got to either buy a governor's tag or, or they got to try to win the raffle, you know, or they need a guide outfitter tag. I tell them, I say, hey, you know, we can buy your point, preference point this year buy it next year we'll have two we can retake a look revisit that at two points and there's a handful of, you know two or three units right there that we can draw a late rifle tag and help them and have a good chance at good success at shooting a, a decent bull and what i call a decent bull in late november is in that 240 to 270 class you know sure it's not boone and crockett you know but it's just a nice representative type bull that they would be happy to take home and say that they've got their Roosevelt. Right on. What would you say, like, the majority of ground, you know, Rocky Mountain compared to Rosie's, you know, is it 50-50 in Oregon, or what's the ratio of, you know, Rocky ground and Rosie ground in comparison to the total? Well, for the entire state, you know, Boone and Crockett and Pope and Young, anything west of Interstate 5, is classified as true Roosevelt elk. And that's just basically where they've taken their finger and drawn the, the line in the sand and that type of thing, you know. I'm going to say it's about 80%, 80 um, Rocky to 20% Roosevelt. Okay, that's good stuff. Let's back up a second and talk about the dynamics of the draw. You talked about it being a preference point state. When is the deadline to apply and do you do paper applications or do it by credit card? How does the actual mechanics of the draw work? You know, there's a um, paper application, or they can go online to the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, and that's kind of a, a tough system to navigate through. But if a guy's real computer savvy, he can usually figure that out by his hunting license and apply for his stuff online. I mean, most of the guys out there nowadays, you know, are, members of like the Hunting Fool or Epic Magazine, you know, Epic down there with uh, Jason and Adam down there, you know, and, and those guys put out some good stuff, you know, I've shared some information with those guys and, and helping them get, get their picks and whatnot, you know, on the best units. Um, but May 15th is the application deadline. I mean, I do a free application service for all the guys that are interested in hunting with me. So if they have any questions or concerns or whatnot or want a little bit of help with that stuff, or they can get in touch with me, you know, and I can definitely get them pointed in the right direction. Do you have to buy the license? In Arizona, you have to buy the license and eat the license in order to get a point. Is that the same in Oregon? That That is the same in Oregon. You know, it's $167. So, by the time, you know, I find a lot of guys at the uh, Wild Sheep Show, you know, that, that apply, and they're like, oh, yeah, I've been applying in Oregon for sheep. And I'm going, well, have you been spending the $8 to buy your preference point for elk and deer? You know, it's an extra 16 bucks, you know. And they're like, no, I didn't know I could do that, you know. Or, or yes, I have been doing that. And uh, that's how I've round up quite a few guys, you know, that are, you know, potential clients down the road that are be ready to draw tags. Um, over the last few years. John, uh, does Oregon differentiate between Rocky and Rosie in the, in the uh, application? And the same with deer. I believe you guys have blacktail, Columbian whitetail, and mule deer. Do you put in for all of those species independently, or is it just a deer application? No, we, they break every, we, I don't know exactly how many different units we have in the state. But I'm going to say we've got probably close to 40, you know, somewhere around there. So, for example, in my local area, I've got what they call the powers unit. You know, it's a 200 series for elk. So everything that is related to elk is a 200 series. And every unit is broken down by a number, like the powers unit is 226. Then you've got the sixes unit, which is 25. Then you've got the Tioga unit, which is 24. You've got the Melrose unit, which is 23, you know, so therefore you've got to figure out what area it is that you want to go to, and then that's then basically the number that you would put down for that time frame and season. But I guess what I'm saying is, do they break out Colombian whitetail, 
black yes. tail and mule deer, and they're all separate. So you're applying yes, for each one of those. Then you have to pick areas that you want to hunt them. Yes, yes, exactly. Okay, sounds sounds good. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about deer. Talk about your favorite deer and a little bit of background on those deer. And now that they're huntable, talk a little bit about you know before when they weren't and kind of the history of it. The Colombian whitetail, um, I believe, it was 1968. They were um, listed, you know, on the endangered species list there, and and then around somewhere I want to say it was 2000. I can't remember the exact year, but the the feds felt that there was a, a big enough number there, and I want to say it was around a thousand deer, fifteen hundred deer in the Umpqua Valley over there near Roseburg, and we we're fortunate enough to get those things delisted. And now they're they're a hunt. We got them to a huntable population, and they're doing great. Other than about two years ago, we had a real bad case of EHD, and um, it took a, a real number on them. Um, the state did cut back on the tags a little bit in that North Bank um, habitat zone. Um, we pulled back um, on a couple parcels of property that we have leased for private property there to hunt, and um, we didn't hunt any that year, those two years. And we're starting to see significant increases again in those deer numbers. And I was fortunate enough this year to have one of my clients take the new number one SCI non-typical record this year. What kind of antler configuration, how do they compare? Are they more like a regular whitetail or blacktail, or how do, what would you say? The way, the way I describe them to people is it basically you're hunting a, a real nice coos deer. You know, they're about the same size. I believe the taxidermists, are, that's what they're using is like a coos deer form to put these deer on after a guy is, you know, lucky enough to harvest one. And so what kind of weight are we talking you know, I'm going to say 110, 120-pound deer. They're not what kind of big. terrain do they, do they live in? Basically, they live right along the creeks, you know, and a real brushy habitat. They're, you know, they're a lot like a whitetail. They're real secretive, you know, so that's where you're going to catch most of them is real low and, uh, like I say, along the creeks and uh, whatnot. If you're looking up real high in those wide-open prairies and oaks and stuff like that, you might catch one out there every now and then, but typically real close to the brush, if not in the brush. So they're kind of like their cousins in the fact that uh, they're, they're um, very sneaky and suspicious by nature. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I've learned so much over hunting these things over the last, you know, six, eight years. It's, it's unbelievable. I've, not, I've never had an opportunity to hunt much whitetails myself, but I've learned a lot from a couple of the hunters that I've been fortunate enough to take that are actually true whitetail hunters, and I learned a lot from those guys. How habitual are they, and, and they get scrape lines when they get rutting, and, and, and I mean, are they pretty much act just like their eastern cousins and midwest cousins? Oh, yeah, no, they're, they're basically, I mean, like a twin to those, you know, they'll be running around making scrapes and, you know, following, you know, I mean, uh, uh, big scrape lines and whatnot, and now that I know what to look for, I didn't really know what that was before when I seen one, and it's pretty obvious now when you find one. And uh, really, a truly a fun deer to hunt during the rut, but we only have one opportunity to hunt those deer in that time frame. Our whitetail deer hunting, you know, for example, the, um, the bow season goes, like I say, the last Saturday of August to the second to last Sunday there of um, September, and then your only other opportunity is during our um, rifle season, and that takes place around the 29th of September to around the 10th of October. So you don't really get to hunt them during the rut. The only time we'd be able to do something like that is somebody was to win the raffle or, or you know, step up and, and buy a, like a governor's type tag. Do they differentiate uh, the raffle for a Colombian whitetail and a governor's tag for just Colombian whitetail, or is it just for deer and you can pick their three? Yeah, it's just for deer. You'd have to put in for, like, the statewide deer, and then you could, you know, Oregon's one of, we have one of four deer. You know, you've got the Columbia whitetail, Columbia blacktail, mule deer, and the regular eastern whitetail in the northeastern part of the state. When it comes to 
um, fund allocations, I would assume, and it's just an assumption from someone from Arizona, that the mule deer get the uh, lion's share of the allocation of dollars from those raffle and governor's tags. You would think that, having three unique species like that, it would be cool to break them out and have the money, you know, allocated specifically for Colombian whitetail, for blacktail, and then for mule deer. I'm curious your thoughts on that. Well, our our uh, most of our raffle and auction tag money is, you know, goes into the Access and Habitat program, and that program is designed for people to come forward, you know, and ask for grants, you know, to help do improvements. Um, and allow the state to, you know, pay for some access for the public to maintain hunting there. Like, let's say, Jay, you own a little 40-acre tract of land there, but it, it landlocks a bunch of BLM behind you or Forest Service. The state will come in there and either buy an easement or pay for an easement for a, a certain amount of years across your tract of land to maintain that public land behind you open to the general public. Um, because we're seeing a lot of that out here, you know, in our neck of the woods. You know, I don't know how it is down there in your neck of the woods, but it's it's really becoming a, a problem, you know. Um, we're getting some of these timber companies now that are, you know, you got to pay for access to get on their ground and, and that type of thing. And, I mean, it's 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 just reaped a lot of havoc over the last couple of years. So people really need to be aware you know, of that, especially before applying, if they haven't been, you know, brought aware of this situation. Yeah, you know, um, I've never, trying to think if I've even actually ever stepped foot in Oregon. I don't think I have. I've been to Washington, Spokane, and Seattle. Um, but from an outsider looking in, it's kind of interesting because you, you have very diverse political views there. You've got both extremes. Um, from, again, from an outsider's perspective, when I look at Oregon, I look at it being an extremely liberal state. Um, curious your thoughts on some of the things as it pertains to hunting with, you know, mountain lion hunting and such that not allowed and, and some of that and how management of wildlife, you know, what you see moving forward and kind of the, some of the changes you've seen uh, since you've been doing your, your deal. Well, that's always, you know, you're playing with, a, a, you're playing with fire there. Um, it's truly a double-edged sword. I wish we could, you know, maintain our, our uh, cougar hunting with hounds, you know. Um, basically, to hunt hounds and bears here in our state, we cannot use dogs anymore, and it's basically all spot and stock. Um, the lion and bear predation, in my opinion, you know, it, it seems to be a pretty significant situation out here you know um i was talking to my local biologist Stu love there today and and he's telling me you know um a lot of the habitat change is, is, is really having an impact on our deer hunting for example and and uh, i just know if we don't got a, a good fawn you know recruitment or survival rate you know we're not going to have good numbers and what he tells me is that they're having a difficult time, you know, deciding or calculating inventory, as he calls it. Um, so he, he truly, you know, asked me to, you know, say this out loud, you know, it truly, as us as hunters, what helps him the most to help is to basically, uh, he needs hunter cooperation with information for the surveys, you know, um, back to the cougar thing. It's, I don't know, um, Oregon has lowered the price of the, of the um, cougar and the bear tags to $16.50 for non-residents. We used to be $191.50. So what, what's that saying? Um, we're having more sightings. Um, people are having more opportunities. Um, are they truly a problem? Um, I don't know that the true answer to that. All I can tell you is the last two years, I've seen 11 cougars in daylight hours. As far as I'm concerned, that's a little too many sightings. So you've noticed a big increase in cougar sightings yourself? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm in the woods a lot, you know, way more than the average person. But, I mean, anybody and everybody that hunts with me, I ask them to, you know, let's go ahead and buy you 
you know, $33 worth of extra tags, you know, to have a black bear tag and a cougar tag in your pocket. So if we're given the opportunity, you know, we can take one. How much of the predation do you feel uh, the bears play on on the big game animals? Um, you know, in that late, we have a spring bear hunt. Um, in that late spring bear hunting, I have seen, you know, a handful of fawns eaten with my own two eyes. And I've seen at one particular, one, one circumstance I can remember, I remember three big boar males, okay, casing a unit like a, um, like a set of soldiers marching at about an even space, let's say probably 50 yards, 40 yards apart, walking north to south looking for some of those fawns in late May. And you, you, know, what they're, you know exactly what they're doing. They're looking for those fawns. And if they find them, they don't have a chance. If those fawns are not up on their feet within about 48 hours, 72 hours, and able to run, I don't think their chance of survival is very minimal. What is the uh, legality of your bear hunting in Oregon with your, with your seasons as far as fall season, spring season? How does that work out? Basically, our spring bear hunts are all conducted on spot and stock. You cannot use hounds. You cannot use bait. You know, so basically, you just got to know. You know, pay attention to to the bear scat that you find in the road or that you know in the brush where you're hunting, and look at what. Take a look at what they're eating, and then know that appropriate food source. You know, whether they're eating blackberries down in the creeks or they're eating the. Um, the little flowers off of the huckle, the huckleberry blossoms, you know, you look for the little white flowers. You, and you just basically go set on a patch of that, you know, with some dark, dense timber on the edge. Keep a close eye along the, you know, the creek bottoms there in the edge of the dark timber, and you can find a bear. How much of your hunting, um, well, let me back up. The timing of the season between the Colombian whitetail, the blacktail, and the mule deer, do they overlap, and how do you handle that as an outfitter? The the black tail the the white tail rifle white tail and black tail open on the same day and the mule deer they all open on the same day on the twenty bear with me a second here the twenty nine I think it's the twenty last Saturday of September this year for twenty eighteen and the mule deer season will go to the twelfth the rifle white tail will go to the tenth. And then the uh, Columbia Blacktail will go to the first Friday of November. So it's a, a very, very, you know, open liberal season. And that tag is over the counter. A person does not have to draw that rifle blacktail tag. Do you hunt blacktail? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Talk to me about blacktail, how much you do compared to the other species, and is it a passion of yours? Yeah, I, I love the, the rifle blacktail season as well. Um, if it was my personal choice, I would tell most people out there, um, I like, um, we need weather. We need cool um, weather with maybe a little bit of rain. Uh, it's going to keep the deer on their feet longer. I like hunting them, partic more particularly so, around the second and, you know, the last second to last week of season to the very end. Um, there's a good chance you can catch those deer in the rut. I've seen the rut start full swing as early as around the 25th of October. Um, but then again, I've seen it start as late as around the 3rd, 4th of November. Um, I think the, the moon, you know, some, we need a couple of cold, crisp nights, maybe even a, a freeze or two um, in early October. And I think that'll truly spark off our rut. And it's usually not too far after that, maybe a week to 10 days after our first really hard freeze, the rut will begin. Are there blacktail? So you live in Coos Bay. I mean, are you surrounded uh, by blacktail, or do you have to travel for them? I, I mean, where I hunt for blacktails is down out of Jackson County in Medford, Oregon. Um, if you pay attention to the Boone and Crockett record book, you know, Jackson County used to be like the number one county um, for, you know, Boone and Crockett type entries. Um, the genetics down there, the age class, the number of deer, the feed, I mean, it just has all the right, um, 
it just, it just has everything that you need to create a, a good buck, a really good buck. And uh, I just love it there. You know, the weather's usually, you know, a little nicer. It can get cold quick. Um, usually if the weather moves in, it doesn't last too, too long. Um, the only thing that happens is with some super nice warm weather in early October, when we start getting the rain, that'll bring on some fog. So we might have some fog issues early in the morning to contend with uh, hunting aspect-wise. Um, but, no, I, I love hunting, I mean, I, especially the rut. Do you guide for blacktail as well? Yes, sir. Yes. Um, bear with me a sec here. Yeah, no, we guide for them here basically the last two weeks of uh, October and the first week of November. Okay, sounds good. So if, if someone's interested in uh, Colombian whitetail, you can help them with that. If they're interested in blacktail, you can help them with that and help them on the guided aspect of that. And then let's talk about mule deer. Um, do you guide for mule deer as well? Yes, we do. Um, I typically play that guide tag, outfit, you know, guaranteed guide outfitter tags um, for clients. I apply for a few areas in southeastern Oregon and northeastern Oregon. And there, it's a hard, it's a hard tag to draw. For example, in the last two years, I've only drawn one mule deer rifle deer tag in the last two years, and um, it's just a, it's a hard, hard tag for someone to draw. I mean, it's one of those tags where it's taken, you know, nineteen, twenty preference points as a non-resident to draw that. So for somebody to come to me and say, "Hey, I want to get started, and I want to." start putting in for the trout creeks that's when i inform them i'm gonna say you know you're really wasting your time on that unless you've already got a bunch of points started now um so as far as you know our landowner tags you know it's something we didn't really touch on there is landowner tags available but i don't particularly care for landowner tags just due to the fact that we have to hunt that particular section of ground um, unless you've got a significant amount of area to hunt, like some of those guys over the northeast area, you know, and they've got them unleashed up, you know, um, I can't remember their name, uh, Sheet Mountain Outfitters, some good guys over there, they've got some good country in that neck of the woods, and they're shooting some nice bucks over there. You, you need a pretty significant piece of ground to hold some good deer. Um, most of the stuff that we have over here towards my side of the state is a lot smaller you know it might be a hundred acres you know 200 acres and, and as you well know that's not very that, that ain't a lot of real estate for a deer to stay there and um, that's why i particularly don't care for the the landowner tags and i like the guide outfitter tags because then we can hunt the entire unit you, you follow me for sure. Um, can you go over some of the units that you like um, and talk a little bit about them, maybe compare and contrast them as far as um, specifically mule deer? And um, I'd like to, for you to do the same with, um, with the other animals we've talked about as well. Um, you know, when it comes down to the mule deer, your traditional, you know, better mule deer units are going to be the, the Steens Mountains down there in the southeast part of the state. Um, the Trout Creek Mountains, um, there's another really good hunt out there called the, um, the Northeast Muzzleloader Whitehorse. Um, it's a, a weather-dependent type hunt. Um, let's see, up there in the northeast of the corner, um, you're looking at some of the Lookout Mountain, um, Snake River, Chesnimnus, um, Sled Springs, um, some of those units up there can hold some really nice mule deer with the proper amount of homework. Um, Central Oregon, I don't know a whole lot about the center part of the state other than it's really good during the governor's tags when those deer migrate down into that high desert country, you know, around four or 5,000 feet in elevation, um, around the Fort Rock, um, Silver Lake country, um, one of the, the better upcoming probably um, mule deer units in Oregon, as far as I've been told and the research that I've done and a little bit of time of scouting I've been looking around in, has been that Warner unit um, down by a town called Lakeview. And uh, they had a little mule deer initiative. They got a, had a, um, a bio in there by the name of, Fa that everybody calls him Foz, 
um, just did a, a wonderful job with that down there, and uh, they've taken some mule or some uh, some cougars out of that area, and it has seemed to have really helped with the uh, the upcoming of the new fawn recruitment and whatnot. And they're taking some tremendous tremendous deer out of there. I mean, I've seen some bucks come out of there in excess over 200 inches, and it's just it's a tough tag to draw. There again, it's like 17, 18, 19 preference points as a non-resident. Um, so somebody that's just wanting to get into it and get going, your chances of drawing that are, are slim to none. So you've, you need to have been in the game a little bit to draw a tag like that. Um, as far as, you know, the Columbia Blacktail, as far as it's concerned, the better units, I think, the best hunt in the state is the 128M. That's the Applegate muzzleloader. That is probably my funnest hunt I've enjoyed um, over the years. There's a, a new one out there now. It's kind of been flying under the radar a little bit. It's called the Chetco muzzleloader. It's hunt number 127M. It's same time frame. It's just across the highway to the north. There was a 190,000-acre fire in there this year. Um, it's going to make for some great feed and, and a good hunting opportunity for some guys that are willing to get after it. Um, there's the Calameopsis Wilderness, which lies inside of that uh, Chetco area. It's big, rough, rugged ground. But if you've got some hardcore guys that are in good shape and dedicated and, and not afraid of, to be up for a challenge, that would be a neat place to go hunting. Lots of lots of lots of bears, cougars, um, elk densities in that area are a little low, but I think your chances of killing a good buck in there if you're a hardcore hunter and aren't afraid to put your boots to the ground, I think a guy could could grind a great deer out of there. Good stuff. What about the Columbia whitetail? The Columbia whitetail, you know, realistically, you need to have private. I mean, it's not. It's just the truth of it is, is you've got to have private property to truly be successful unless you go hunt the North Bank habitat. The North Bank habitat has just a very, very few tag numbers available out there for Columbia Whitetail for somebody. And in my professional opinion, the trophy quality in that area has really, really slipped. I mean, really slipped. Not saying you couldn't kill a good deer out of there and grind one out, but your best bet is to find somebody like myself that has been managing a piece of property, only shooting one deer off of a, you know, a 600-acre tract, you know, and maybe letting that thing go to sleep for a couple of years and then going back and taking another one. If you find somebody that's doing that, you know, your chances of shooting a nice buck are really, I mean, really, really high. It's just that you're not going to, you're going to shoot a buck, you know, a good buck. It's just a matter of how big. For sure. Um, what about the sheep? And uh, do you do any of the sheep stuff in Oregon? You know, um, yeah, I, I just recently started getting into that a little bit. I've been fortunate enough to knock on wood. Uh, myself and my boy have been fortunate enough to draw California bighorn permits in Oregon. And uh, we've shot a couple of the biggest rams, you know. You know I'm going to say two of the 20 largest California bighorns ever killed in Oregon. We both won gold awards there at the wild sheep show in reno um, my uncle he drew a tag um the year before my son drew one so yeah we've we've done some sheep hunting there um i had a client uh, listen to this he sends me his money for his license and his preference point for elk and deer he doesn't send me the eight dollars for his his preference point or i mean his sheep application so what do I do? John pulls out $10 out of his wallet, being the good guy, and I put my hunter, my client, in for the sheep draw, just to throw, drop his name in the hat. Lo and behold, he draws. And uh, we end up going over there. And shot a, <laughs> yeah. Did you tell him, did you tell yeah. him my 10 bucks does, is not going to come as cheap as 10 bucks? You owe me more than that, bucko? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I called him up and I said, you know, I'm, I go, did you hear me screaming? He was from Ewington, uh, Nevada. And uh, I go, hey, man, I go, we're going, you're going bighorn sheep hunting. He goes, no, I'm going stone sheep hunting this year. And I'm going, well, you're going bighorn hunting, too, because you pulled the Rocky Mountain bighorn tag in Oregon. And he's going, no, 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 I did. And then he goes, no, I didn't. Well, then I'm, I hung up the phone. 
I took a picture of his successful um, application draw there online, checking all this stuff for him, and I texted it to him. Well, the next thing I know, my phone's blowing up, and he goes, are you kidding me? So he had to postpone his stone sheep hunt to the following year to do his bighorn hunt this year. And, you know, that was a couple years ago. And, uh, but this guy, it was just, it was just real funny the way it all portrayed out, you know, and, and, uh, he, 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 now he can't apply in Oregon because it's once in a lifetime, you know, on the sheep aspect. Gotcha. And you guys but have Rockies out. and California yeah. bighorn, right? Yes. And when, like I say, when it comes to the sheep over there, we only give out 3% to non-residents. So, and there's only a small handful of units that the non-residents can actually apply for and be eligible to draw. Um, Lookout Mountain, number two, is the Rocky Mountain Bighorn permit. Then you've got the um, West John Day and the East John Day. Um, I don't know exactly. I'm not permitted for that area over there, which season you know that is, if it's the third or second hunt. You've just got to pay real close attention to that. Um, then there is the East Beatty's Butte is another season. Um, Hart Mountain generally has one tag available for non-residents. Um, let's see here. Um, yeah, we've got Hart Mountain, East Beatty's, and then the South Central Number 1 is another one. And I've actually been on a sheep hunt over there with a friend of mine that drew the tag. And that's a big, big area over there. There's some decent sheep, but me personally, I tell all my clients it's to put out for put in for lookout number one for the big horn. There is some lots of rams, lots and lots of rams. First year I ever hunted that for Tony there uh, a couple years ago, one day scouting. Um, in my notes, the biotel told me that he calculated that there was 54 rams in the unit. And the first day of my scouting over there, I found 63 different rams. That's a heck of a day. <laughs> yeah. No, and you found eight more than he thought were alive in the unit. That's he, well, that's good. just it. And he, and, he, and he gets to use a helicopter, and I was on my boots were to the ground. I'd have sent yeah, him a no. bill and said, hey, man, you spent all that money on <laughs> helicopter. You should have just hired me. Yeah. Yeah, no, a good friend of mine by the name of Neil Fagger and his wife, Catherine, they, they joined me in that deal. And Neil used to be, like, the number two guy for the um, National Wealth uh, Federation there, you know, and out of Cody, Wyoming, just a real good guy. And uh, he couldn't believe the amount of rams that we had. And, uh, we, I mean, we were, you know, taking notes and uh, writing it all down and how many we would see and what drainages we were seeing them in. And, and he goes, man, I just can't believe this. The only downfall to that area is, is that age structure of those rams over there. Don't take me wrong. We're killing some nice rams over there. They're killing, last year, I think they took four rams in the, um, like, 179 to 189 area. Um, and just awesome sheep, but they're, you know, six, seven years old. I think one of those rams might have calculated out scoring eight years old. I mean, could you imagine what those rams would be like if they got to be nine and ten? I mean, in other words, if they let them grow a little bit, you you can't hardly sometimes blame the guys that draw tags, um, yeah. Because a lot of them don't even know. But a unit like that, man, if if you could let some of those rams grow, it would probably be just giants, wouldn't it? Oh, there there has been some great rams killed out of there, and you know, quite a you know, I must say, seven or eight in that you know low to mid one nineties. You know, there's been some absolute wow. just monsters in there. You know, great genetics. I mean, ah, that's awesome. But just, I'd like to see the age structure, you know, the age class. Just one or two more years would just, man, I know what our, our statewide <laughs> bighorn tag would probably sell for if they were to do something like that because everybody would want it, you know. I mean, you'd probably see that thing jump up, you know, significantly. Yeah, for sure. Um Let's double back to the elk units and talk a little bit about, even though Rocky Mountain elk isn't your specialty, talk a little bit about the, the, the elk units. Um, you know, the, as far as the Roosevelt is concerned, you know, I like the, uh, the Powers unit, the Sixes unit, the Chetco unit. The Chetco could really be a sleeper. Now, elk densities, 
They're not as high. You've got some private property issues you've got to deal with there. There's a lot of national forests. We've got the big burn. But I think if you did the proper homework, you could really kill a nice bull down there if you did the proper homework. Um, back to the sixes, um, good numbers of elk. But then again, lots of private property. Um, I really, I really like that unit a lot. It's really, you know, coming up a little bit more for me. Back to the powers, um, most of the guys that have bought governor's tags that have hunted with me in the past, you know, few years, um, that's where a majority of them bigger bulls have come from. Um, it's, it's a harder unit to draw. It takes around average 10 points to draw that unit. Um, Archery-wise, I think one guy last year, non-resident, had 17 points, and another guy had 13. Um, just a great unit. You know, then again, you got to worry about um, private timberland access. You're going to have to pay for that, you know, if you don't elect to go with an outfitter. Um, there is other private timber companies you don't have to pay an access to. There is plenty of public ground to hunt, um, but just great bulls in that area if you if you do your proper homework. Um, I've killed... Now that's that's Roosevelt, or this is Rocky. That's that's Rocky Roosevelt. That's Roosevelt. Okay, I'll go back. I'll go okay. back to the to the Rocky Mountain here in a sec. Um, okay. As far as up and down the coast here, you know, the Tioga unit has a lot of elk. It's easy to draw. Um, they have a three point restriction during rifle season and archery season. Um, you just, it's a big unit, lots of elk. Um, but in my opinion. There's too many tags for a rifle. I do not guide and will not guide in that in rifle season in there because you will get ran over. I mean, it's it's that bad. Um, not saying you know the guy that knows the right spot, done the right homework, can't get it done. It's just it's tough, real tough. Well, there's 21. I think it was 2,100 tags given out last year versus a sixes unit where there's only 140. So you, you see the difference there. It's only obvious, way less pressure. A huge difference, yeah. Yeah, huge difference. So that's why I stick mainly to those three units right there myself personally. Then there's one other unit I'd like to talk about for the Roosevelt. It is an awesome, awesome elk hunt. It is, it's long. It starts on August 1st and goes to the end of March. It's a rifle hunt. And basically, yeah, it's a rifle hunt. And it's in the Melrose unit. But you'll notice when you go do your applications online there that they're going to tell you there's a lot of private property. So you better have, you know, have some place to go or know exactly where you're going. There's some big bulls in there. They've killed some tremendous elk. Um, but what we're seeing now is fire danger in that neck of the woods. So if you don't got your bull knocked down in the first couple, you know, first week or so, week and a half, you're more inclined to just going to have to wrap her up and not come back in, you know, somewhere around January because that is an actual over-the-counter rifle elk tag area, and a bow hunter can hunt in there during bow season with an over-the-counter tag even though you can use a rifle, and those guys may be shut out due to fire danger. Now, I don't want to go in there myself with a client and have to compete with somebody, you know, in that general coast rifle elk season so I'm just going to hope that those bulls run off into the thick stuff and they generally start poking their heads back out real good in that first, second, third week of January. And then we've got, you know, basically January and February to get them rounded up and corralled up and, and uh, get them harvested. Yeah. But you just you need to more than likely be inclined to hire an outfitter unless you're from the area or you're willing to put forth the time and effort and do a lot of homework. Good stuff, good intel there. The, the, the Rocky, now back to the Rocky Mountain elk. Um, the Winnaha, uh, Mount Emily, Sled Springs, the Walla Walla, um, Snake River, on that northeastern corner, that's typically where our better Rocky Mountain elk are come from. Um, everybody that's been applying in Oregon knows about the Winnaha or the Mount Emily here the last couple of years. Those two units have been putting out the better elk. I tell guys, you know, the, you know, they ask me about Rocky Mountain elk, and they're like, what can, be, what can I shoot over there? Um, I tell them, I say, you know, realistically, you know, if you go hunt hard, 
a 330, 340 bull is what to be expected, you know, if you hunt hard. Um, a good friend of mine um, was fortunate enough to take a really nice bull there this last year that was in the 370s in the Mount Emily. Um, I think it was like 378, you know, with his bow. And But uh, that guy is tough as anybody out there. And he put, definitely puts forth the time and the effort. He looked over a lot of elk to take that one. And that's the best one that, that I was aware of last year in that Mount Emily unit. Um, the Winaha, I didn't quite get caught. I haven't been caught up. I've been on the road quite a bit to all these hunting conventions and whatnot. And I haven't been, you know, seen any pictures on Facebook or Instagram or anything that's, you know, people are fortunate enough to draw a tag in what they were, have harvested out of that neck of the woods. So, but those are our better, you know, three, four units over there. But anybody that's in pursuit of a, you know, a 370 plus type Rocky Mountain elk, I just shake my head and tell them, I go, you know, you'd go to Arizona, you'd go to Utah, Nevada, you know, New Mexico, those those are your states down there. That's where you need to be Rocky Mountain elk hunting, you know, maybe a few units in Colorado, but, you know, being able to get a tag realistically. And uh, they're like, no, oh, there's 400-inch elk in Oregon, you know. Yeah, you, you will find a needle in a haystack every now and then, but very rarely. And uh, that's basically what you're looking for. But, I mean, I like to just keep it realistic. A 340 bull in Oregon, that's a nice elk. You know, if you shoot something better than that, you've done pretty well. Can you also buy landowner tags in Oregon for elk, or, or are there other ways other than drawing? Yeah, you can get landowner tags um, over there in that neck of the woods. I don't have any intel, or um, I don't know anybody in that neck of the woods. There again, you know, you're looking at, you know, the size. You need a significant piece of ground that you know that's going to hold elk. And I, I, I just, me personally, I don't like landowner tags. I mean, now the guy that might have, you know, say he's got thirty to 40,000 acres, 50,000 acres over there, if he's got a significant chunk of ground and he's got a couple alfalfa pivots out there and he knows the elk coming and going, you know, then that would be a, a way different story. Then I wouldn't probably have a problem selling some Rocky Mountain elk tags over there. Gotcha. And your problem with the tags is the land's too small? In, our, in my neck of the woods, that what, that's what we run into. You know, when I have a landowner approach me, you know, saying, hey, would you like to be interested in buying my, you know, my guaranteed landowner tag, you know, I'm like, it just, it's not justifiable to me because one, you know, social media, the internet, landowners are asking a little bit more than probably what they, they should for that. You know, I don't want to get into figures there and, and step on toes, but it's an elk. It's not, you know, a piece of gold you know, and it's, it just makes it tough, you know, especially for if I'm trying to attempt to reach out to the blue collar guy, you know, that budgets his money and goes on one or two guided hunts a year. It's hard for me to keep my price point at that point to attract those guys rather than going out and trying to have to find the guy that has, you know, a lot of money, you know, that can truly afford to go and wants to go all the time. And, uh, it, it just makes it tough for a guy like that, you know, the blue-collar guy. Yeah, let's take a quick break here. I want to uh, thank the, all of the listeners for listening uh, to this podcast and giving me so much support, and I want to thank you guys for sending me emails uh, at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. I also want to thank the sponsors, uh, Go Hunt Insider, and if you aren't already a Go Hunt Insider member, I highly recommend you do that. Go Hunt Insider is the best hunting resource out there for accurate draw odds and statistics as well as harvest data. Uh, they've also got a gear shop that they've got all kinds of uh, gear, and it's, it's gear that is directly picked out by uh, Brady Miller and Trail Kreitzer and you know, some of the guys that work there and um, specific gear for backcountry hunts and, and you know, with the hunter in mind. Uh, all you got to do is sign up for Go Hunt uh, Insider and go to GoHunt.com Insider. Use the J. Scott promo code. You're actually going to get a $50 Go Hunt Gear Shop gift card, and you can actually use that $50 right away. I've had some guys send me 
some uh, Instagram messages and emails that they immediately bought Yeti Rambler uh, cups and, and different things with that $50. Uh, but I highly recommend you guys sign up for the Go Hunt Insider. I want to thank them for their sponsorship of this podcast. Also, Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. Go to kuyu.com. That's K-U-I-U.com. You can also follow them on their Instagram account, and that's kuyu underscore official. Um, Jason Harrison and his crew make awesome gear there at kuyu. Phonescope.com. I want to thank Cheston Davis. They make the best digiscoping adapter it adapts any phone to any optic, whether that be a, uh, a spotting scope or a binocular and soon to be actually rifle scopes, guys. It's pretty exciting. Um, and if you use the JSCOT16 promo code, you're going to get a 10% discount. And then last but not least, the outdoorsman there in Arizona, the Optics Authority, Cody Nelson and his crew, they do such a great job. Uh, with their tripods, with their binocular sales, spotting scope sales, rifle scopes, any type of optics, they're the authority. If you use the J. Scott promo code, you're going to get a 10% discount there uh, uh, with the outdoorsmen. I want to thank all those sponsors. And, John, um, we've, we've covered a lot of ground, and I'll give you a chance to uh, cover anything that you think we might have missed, but I do, I can't do a podcast with someone with Oregon without uh, talking about uh, uh, the number one game animal in Oregon. And, and as a matter of fact, uh, the number one game animal in the United States, and I say that with a smile on my face because I've got a handful of buddies that are just rolling their eyes. But, um, and I don't know, even know if you do this uh, or if you look at them like a lot of my buddies do, like they're just rats, but you guys are infested with turkeys. Do you get into the spring turkey hunting at all? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, no. Um, if there's something out there that I can say that's doing extremely well, that is the spring turkeys. Um, you know, I got a, um, on a couple of my whitetail places over there in the, the Roseburg Valley, you know, Umpqua Valley, Roseburg area, they are just like fleas. They're everywhere. And, um, do you actually do guided hunts for turkey, or have you gotten into that, or no? Yeah, yeah, we do take a few guided turkey hunts a year, not an overabundance. Um, I got a couple good buddies of mine that do it a lot. Um, my son, he has, I've been, you know, basically pushing those over to my boy. He's really liked it. I hate to even say it, but you want to know what? I've never ever killed one. Oh my gosh! <laughs> well, you need to change that. <laughs> I, I, I don't. I don't want to. I shouldn't say that out loud. But I mean, I've guided a lot of guys to some big mature toms, and um, no, it's it's fun. Um, the spring bear season, you know, I'm usually pretty engulfed with that. So what? Sometimes what I like to do is get a guy that he wants to come out and go, you know, spring bear hunting. And the bear hunting is, you know, late in the afternoon, so I, do, I usually roll, roll those guys out of bed, and I'm like going, hey, let's put a turkey tag in our pocket, and, and we'll go turkey hunting in the morning and spring bear hunting in the afternoon. And uh, that's usually the way we roll there. I mean, on the average, you know, we'll take maybe a handful, five or six really nice toms a year. You know, I don't get it a crazy amount of people, even though I do have the area to where I could take some good pe you know, um, some good toms you know, a fair number of good toms off each place, um, but they're everywhere. I mean, like you say, if there's one animal out there, you know, that is, is absolutely thriving in our state, and that's those birds. I wake up to them every morning gobbling outside my window at my neighbor's house. <laughs> <And> <laughs> we live in town. <laughs> I mean, oh, they're right here, right, Yeah, right here in town. So, yeah, no, that's funny. Um, but, no, they are absolutely doing well, that's for sure. And they're, and they're everywhere. I mean, everywhere. Well, that's good. A turkey nut like myself smiles when I hear that. I have yet to hunt Oregon. I've had several invites to get out there, and I'm usually tied up with my Gould's turkey hunts down in Mexico. But uh, one of these days I want to get out to Oregon because I believe it's a multiple bird state, I, I, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken. I think, yeah, you, I think you can take a couple birds. Yes, I believe, I, don't quote me on this, but I believe it's three spring turkeys. Two, okay. two for sure, two for sure, if not three. And then you can okay. also hunt them during the fall time. Yeah, that's pretty neat. Are there any animals that, um, that we didn't cover that, that we need to, or are there any additional things that you don't feel like we covered that you need to? 
No, no. Um, I think we pretty much got you know the, a majority of it covered there. If anybody has any questions, you know, they can feel free to reach me on my cell phone. That's my lifeline. That's on my side all the time and uh, whatnot. And I'd be happy to help anybody with their applications if they need some help or they got any questions. Sounds good. Why don't you um, tell me and the listeners how, how the best way they can reach you and, and how they can follow along with your um, content? Um, the best way to reach me, you know, is um, through my email. Um, and they can basically go to my website at EdenRidgeOutfitters.com. Um, all my contact info is on there. Um, or reach me directly on my cell phone, and that's area code 541 290 Two six seven one, and I'd be, you know, more than grateful to give anybody my two cents and my thoughts, especially if they have, you know, started or haven't started or have a lot of points, and uh, you know, help them pick a unit that best suits them. That's good stuff. I appreciate you spending time with us, and uh, pr appreciate you being real candid about all the different areas and animals you hunt. It's obvious that you have a passion for it, and. Uh, I want to encourage the listeners to reach out to, to you if, if uh, they're interested in hunting Oregon. And uh, just thank you for your time today. And uh, I'll also link up in the show notes uh, your, your website. And um, uh, hopefully, hopefully uh, you'll get some uh, people calling uh, wanting to put in for Oregon. And uh, look forward to speaking with you. Maybe we can do a hunt recap uh, after the fall and see how you guys did. And I just want to encourage you uh, to keep uh, keep fighting the fight and doing the good job that you do with uh, all your outfitting business. And I just appreciate your expertise today. Nope, I appreciate you for having me on. And uh, like I say, I'll look forward to speaking with you again in the late fall or, you know, maybe before show season gets started next year. You know, generally that's a better time for me there just after Christmas, you know, first of the year. All right, and keep an eye on those turkeys for me over there, okay? <laughs> hey, what, real real quick, when is your, your gold season down there, you know, for your turkeys? Yeah, so typic typically I run my hunts uh, April 15th to May 15th, um, and that's okay. more, uh, I could probably run them to June 1st, but I'm a big fisherman as well, and I like to get back up to Colorado and um, uh, get the get the fish in and, and, you know, get ready, I fish the Green River in Utah quite a bit, and uh, fish uh, the Gunnison uh, Gorge, usually the salmon flies. I, I went last year, and, you know, that's usually kicking off right at the end of May, early June. And so getting back here to Colorado is is uh, big uh, for me to get ready for the summer fishing season. Um, but, yeah, we run them for about 30 days, April 15th to May 15th, and it's just a blast. Um, they're, a, they're a real special bird for sure and um, beautiful white-tipped bird. So, Pretty cool. Um, I am a turkey nut. I love those buggers and have loved them for a long time. So it's funny when I talk to guys like yourself sometimes, like they're just like, they're just like rats. They're rabbits. They run in front of my truck and I speed up trying to, you know, and it's just like, and then you've got Arizona where, you know, we have some good turkey hunting in some places, but we just don't have tons of birds. Um, but then I talk to other people who are like, they're just everywhere. They're like, ground squirrels or, you know, gophers running across the road. I mean, it's just like it's funny how, you know, different places, populations are bigger than others and what have you. So, um, right. buddy, I, I appreciate you spending time uh, with us and um, I look forward to seeing your success this fall. Okay. Thanks again, Jay, for having me. And any way I can help, uh, just give me a call. All right, buddy. Sounds good. Take care. God bless. All right. Bye-bye.